In Western Europe, the all-powerful United States of America used to be the big gorilla in the room. Not so much anymore. I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy that people don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Well, we've gone from Make America Great Again to America is Back. Any and every major politician needs some kind of five-word or less slogan that can grab popular attention in an incredibly cluttered 24-7 world of information coming at us literally all the time. Both phrases worked. You may remember Trump's 2016 opponent. What was her memorable slogan? Mm, She didn't have one. And you note, she lost. So what did MAGA mean, and what does America as back mean? And that's the point. It can mean whatever the listener wants to hear, and is meant to be favorably interpretable by everyone, never offending anyone. Simple, warm, and fuzzy beats complicated substance every time. It seems pretty clear his predecessor meant the return of the mythical rule of white Protestant men over everyone else, especially people of color. So here we are with the new president. What does he mean by America is back? Of course, it too can mean many things. The word back clearly implies restoration of American hegemony, the world's only superpower that calls the shots for everyone else, be that Europe, the Middle East, Asia, South America, or Africa. Our returning guest today, Patrick Lawrence, says, not so fast. Thanks, at least in some measure, to our 45th president's alienating the whole world incredibly effectively, imagining the U.S. returning to a position of world dominance is just that. Imagination ain't gonna happen. Nor does it need to happen. We have a newly empowered Europe, and other parts of the world no longer automatically reserve the position at the head of the table for the good old USA. So what is President Biden standing in a world we used to think we could dominate? How do the European leaders like Angela Merkel and Emmanuel Macron interpret the phrase, America is back? With us today to shed light on this question is returning guest Patrick Lawrence. Thank you once again for being with us, Patrick. Oh, always a pleasure, Bert. Patrick Lawrence is a longtime correspondent abroad for the International Herald Tribune, I miss it, and The New Yorker, and now a columnist, essayist, and lecturer. His most recent book, which I highly recommend, is Time No Longer, Americans After the American Century, uh, which was published in 2013. His new book, The Journalist and His Shadow, a memoir and critique of America media since the Cold War, is due out later this year. His columns appear in Consortium News and The Scrum, a Substack population, uh, publication he launched late last year with two colleagues. And his latest article is titled, Biden in Europe, Those Courteous Continentals. <laughs> they are courteous. Well, thanks again. Joe Biden's first foray into sure. Europe as president, virtually, of course, was on February 19th at the Munich Security Conference, which assembled some of the world's most senior decision makers to discuss how to rebuild and renew the Transatlantic Alliance. I have a memory of Biden's predecessor meeting with those same people. What was that like, and how did our prior embarrassing president affect America's relations with Western Europe 
for perhaps the long haul. How did uh, Trump? Yes. Yeah. Um, Trump uh, did rather badly with Europe, but um, it's not so simple as as that plain statement may suggest, okay? He alienated Europe very big time um, when he uh, withdrew from the Paris Climate Accord right. um, and subsequently the uh, Iran nuclear accord in very short order. Um, these were, especially the Iran nuclear accord, I would say, right? Mm -hmm. uh, because it was... Uh, somewhat specifically um, involved w the Western democracies uh, along with China and Russia. Um, these were really uh, greatly valued among the Europeans for their sort of symbolic uh, aspect, Bert. Um, they were, they were uh, emblems of, you know, Europe's ability to work in concert right uh -huh. they the they stood for global cooperation and uh that's something the europeans put great store by um mm -hmm. and so trump's withdrawal from that uh was uh you know a, a rather serious injury uh, from the European point of view, and 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 that's a big reason why, oh. apart from the practicalities, the Iran nuclear yeah. accord is something the Europeans wanted to work, right? Uh, uh, ditto, of course, the climate accord. Um, and they're right. And there. So Trump did some damage there. Yes. Okay, but uh, um, but he he also engaged the question of NATO and its uh, uh -huh. validity in in our post-Cold War circumstance. Um, and the Europeans, in my read, are very, very ambivalent about NATO. Trump has offended the Europeans again by criticizing NATO and questioning its purpose. This is where we begin to get into distortion, mm. uh, because the Europeans are nothing if not courteous. They're not going to take on the Americans uh, full force head on. But their commitment to NATO is not what we pretend it to be. Right? Uh, what, what is it? What do they want? What's, what are they saying about a revival of NATO? Well, let's look at the numbers, okay? Um, we're constantly complaining that, uh, well, the Pentagon and the national security apparatus are constantly complaining that... Um, the Europeans are not putting in their share of NATO's budget. The organizing rule here is every member must contribute 2% of its GDP. Mm -hmm. If you think about it, well, where does that number come from? It's completely arbitrary, oh, yeah. right? Yeah. It, it makes no allowance for surrounding circumstances. Do we always need 2%? 2% uh, under what circumstances? Why? And what kind of a, what kind of a measure is the GDP? I mean, that's not a real yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, and also, if you think about it, two percent of GDP for defense—that's a very great deal of money, yeah, yeah. right? And so the Europeans haven't been measuring up. Nothing's ever much made of this fact, because I think the conclusion is uh, runs counter to the American version of 
of our circumstances. Uh, in my read, the Europeans don't put 2% of GDP in, well, some do, but m numerous don't, right? Uh, don't put 2% of GDP into NATO because they don't really think it's important. Um, uh, they, you know, and that's a reading that I, I think we, on this side of the ocean, would do very, very well to consider more carefully. Yeah. Right? Uh, uh, so there were um, one other point before we move on. Sure. Uh, Trump alienated the Europeans in the ways I just mentioned, but uh, there was transatlantic drift far, far earlier than Donald Trump, hmm. uh, way earlier. Hmm. One measure, we can go back to the Obama administration uh, after we cultivated the coup in Ukraine and um, uh, Russia in response re-annexed uh, the Crimean Peninsula. Uh, we imposed sanctions uh, and force-marched the Europeans into uh, abiding, impose, joining us in those sanctions uh, with uh, reviews. Uh, EU had a review every six months, right? Mm -hmm. uh, there was more and more dissent as those six-month reviews proceeded over the years. There was more and more dissent among the Europeans, uh, uh, numerous of these countries saying, well, we don't want these anymore. Uh, um, so that was Obama. Uh -huh. um, but we could go back, and I'll be brief here, uh, we could go back to the mid-Cold War decades uh, when um, the Europeans began to conclude, you know, uh, uh, a working relationship with the Soviet Union, one or another form of détente or rapprochement, mm -hmm. is actually... In more in our interest and more in everybody's interest in the end, the American binary is mm. is too severe. It's not that useful, and we really would like to go beyond this. Uh, we Americans would not let them, uh, uh, and and so I, I in my read, transatlantic drift has been. Uh, a phenomenon uh, gradually gaining in momentum. Mm -hmm. I would say since the year, uh, I can't put a year on it, forgive me, but I would say mid-Cold War. Mm -hmm. um, they, the Europeans were very restless with the Cold War arrangement by the end of it. Yeah, they're right and there. And so Donald Trump was more like a, a, a denouement than anything else. Yeah, they're they're right there, and the same thing is with uh, the Middle East. They're right there. So mm. how how was Biden? We know how uh, his predecessor was received by Macron and Merkel. How was Biden received by them? And um, my words are uh, courteously or uh, cordially. Okay, mm -hmm. implicit in these terms is is a certain subtle distance um uh if someone if if i'm cordial toward you uh bert yes. uh, uh i in in some ways it implies i'm i'm managing our friendship right uh, uh um and and uh <laughs> that's what i mean when i say courteous right uh -huh. they were very 
courteous to the Americans. We still hold the big stick. Um, but uh, they are now quite determined to uh, go gradually, I would say, their own way on a number of very important questions. Uh, one of them is the relationship with Russia. Uh-huh. Another one is the relationship with China. Mm-hmm. And a third is what, uh, on the topic of what Macron uh, calls our strategic autonomy, right? Uh. These are three big ones. Yeah. Um, and uh, in my read, the transatlantic relationship is has now entered a phase of very, very fundamental transformation. The world is not going to look the same uh, from here on out. It will be subtle. It will be gradual. Um, the Europeans are, are not much for abrupt, uh, any sort of shocking change. <laughs> well, I suppose but, this, uh, this... Our world is changing. And I think, uh, you know, your listeners and everybody else on this side of the pond uh, would do well to understand what we're looking at here. And I can't help but think it's a good thing. Now, maybe the military contractors are less than happy with it. But aside from that, it's uh, it's good for us. I think it really is. Yes. And your article includes a quote from our new president, Joseph Biden. He said, democracy doesn't happen by accident. We have to defend it, strengthen it, renew it. We have to prove that our model isn't a relic of our history. It's so interesting, that remark. Well, and then following that, on March 3rd, speaking at the State Department, our new Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, said, this is fascinating to me, he said, the world does not organize itself, and that diplomacy depends on the strength of our military. Now, to, to this listener, me... That sure sounded like a relic of our history, and maybe I'm too sensitive, but it, it really sounds condescending. I mean, what yeah. the heck? I mean, look, uh, the new noise in Washington, uh, and um, I, I edit documents for one of the prominent think tanks down there, right? So I I have an ear to this um, more or less daily. The new noise in Washington is military restraint, diplomacy first, uh, the the Pentagon as a last resort, the foreign policy needs to be recentered in the State Department, and so on and so on. That sounds and so good on, to me. Right? Yeah, uh, uh, yeah. But uh, I invite your listeners to consider what is said and what is done. Yeah. Right. Uh, uh, th- this is. This is the new uh, line, right? And I'm actually quite pleased. These sort of thoughts were were not permissible even a few years ago. True. Uh, you, you know, uh, even under when I was a correspondent in Tokyo a long time ago, when I was a correspondent in Tokyo, uh, uh, it was plain to me we did not have a foreign policy across the Pacific. We had a security policy. Yeah. We had a we had a, a military policy. Right, that's what I mean by a security policy. Right, uh-huh. interesting. Uh, this could not be said. It can be said now, uh, but I think we need to understand that as an interim step. Uh-huh. Uh, 
on the way to making it, allowing it to make any difference, right? Um, and so, a couple that Blinken remark, mm-hmm. uh, and also Biden's, um, yeah, to the Europeans. There's just so much in there. Let's take one aspect of it, or a couple. Okay. Sure. Um, what Blinken is saying is, um, y- you know, in in the mold of what I just described. Yeah, diplomacy first, but it depends on our very powerful military. Mm. Well, what what is being said here, right? Uh, um, it's a, a it's it's mendacious. It's uh, it's trickery. Um, uh, he is saying uh, he is saying we are going to continue maintaining the world's most powerful military by many magnitudes. Yes. Um, and the only reason to maintain a military of of the size of ours is to maintain the the prospect of threat against uh-huh. others who sure. don't conform uh-huh. okay so uh what it means is we're going to put we're going to window dress with diplomacy <laughs> but don't forget the pentagon and raytheon and all that are right there oh my goodness uh, I... that's one and number two uh this is just as interesting maybe more so in a certain way um Biden, uh, in his address to the Europeans, we have to prove our model is not a relic of history. Yeah. Right? Uh, uh, we are casting, uh, this is, this is uh, uh, apropos the Chinese primarily, right? uh, we are casting um, our relationship with China as a competition of models, okay? Uh, our model versus what were our, one of our new obsessions, uh, the the China's authoritarian model, right? And one of the reasons we are obsessed with it is because it is so amazingly effective yes. if uh, when measured uh, in um, you know material yeah. statistics. Uh, it is. It, it, no it gets things done. It right? does. Uh, yeah. The Europeans um, have a much more astute notion of their interests. Their interests don't lie in uh, in criticizing China's mode of government. Um, their interests lie in, in in identifying their genuine national security interests and their economic well-being. They're, 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 they, they identify no interest whatsoever in complaining to the Chinese that they are not Democrats like we Westerners, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, this is a big mistake on the, on the Americans' part, right? Uh, we really don't have any interest in whether the Chinese are governed democratically or not. That's a question for the Chinese to resolve. Imagine that. Right? Yeah. Um, and, and also uh, our... Um, our whole frame for considering these sorts of questions is is you know is is very fatally flawed. Politics and government and all such matters uh, are rooted in culture. They're rooted in mm-hmm. culture. They're rooted in tr- tradition. They're they're 
they're rooted in sure. uh, uh, you know all, all manner of things Culture. like that, yeah. right? Uh-huh. Tr- value systems and so on. The notion that um, the Chinese or anyone else are wrong uh, <laughs> if they don't look like us is is just it's primitive. Yes. You know, uh, it, <laughs> look at Chinese Chinese political tradition. Millennia, millennia of of imperial rule and all that, right? Uh, oh, yeah. Very highly centralized government, right? Um, uh, it, it's just different. It right? is. It's um, different, and not one. And, is... and you know, a, a very fine, uh, a really wonderful economist, no longer with us, named High Minsky, Hyman Minsky, right? Uh, High uh, Minsky was a, he specialized in labor economics, but never mind that. Uh, he had a wonderful expression. There is there is many kinds of capitalism as Heinz has pickles, okay? Uh, and and um, I think maybe the same thing might be, or some variant might apply to the question of democracy. What kind uh, of democracy? Uh, you know, Japanese democracy uh, is quite different from ours uh, and there's a certain... Korean democracy which I uh, greatly admire uh, um, is very different from ours right uh, the Chinese call their system a, a, a people's democracy right uh, uh, it's not ours to say this right. is right or wrong right right uh, right and... I you know I I, I am a Westerner uh, yeah. after all those years in Asia I don't count myself entirely a Westerner anymore but um my sensibility changed, but and, uh, and yet we can't... I'm a Westerner. I want to live in you know. I, I want to sure. live in a in Western a society style. that that uh, I I find familiar, however broken it may be. Um, of course, and to think I'm not sitting here to tell the Chinese how they should govern themselves, and we're all wrong about that. To return to the original point, this sort of thing interests the Europeans not at all. Yeah. Well, there's, you know, someone said a long time ago how valuable it is to think with history. And there's so many, as you were talking before about, uh, you know, the window dressing of, of diplomacy. Uh, I was, of course, reminded of Teddy Roosevelt with uh, speak softly and carry a big stick. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and there's also, you know, in the in the Second World War, we thought, well, we are so superior to the Japanese. They won't have any chance of putting up a fight against us. Wrong, mm. wrong. Uh, for, right. for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today, once again, is the quite knowledgeable Patrick Lawrence, who's got a new article titled Biden in Europe, Those Courteous Continentals. And the uh, uh, Munich Security Conference Chairman, Ambassador Issinger, I hope I pronounced that right, said, uh, called it the theme of the uh, conference was Westlessness. The term described the sense that the world, but also the West itself, was getting less Western, less rule-based, less value-oriented. He also said that many of the geopolitical certainties that have defined the post-Cold War era continue to be dangerously eroding. End of his quote. Yet others at the conference said the past year had also offered signs of hope and that the conference ought to look beyond Westlessness and find ways to rebuild the transatlantic partnership, as well as to identify joint 
opportunities to tackle joint opportunities to tackle global challenges such as climate change and the COVID-19 pandemic. What do you what do you think that means, Westlessness and the West's response to it? Mm-hmm. Good question, Bert. You're always there with the good questions. Yeah, uh, I... um, let's look at this two ways, okay? Um, uh, endogenously and uh, exogenously, all right? Uh, inside the West, there is a transformation taking place. We've already opened up this topic. Uh, uh, I I, I don't think the West is going to disappear um, uh, as a phenomenon, uh, but I think think it's coming part way apart. Can I tell you a little story? Oh, sure. When I was covering Indonesia after the fall of Suharto, there were a lot of autonomous autonomy movements yeah. in the islands, uh-huh. right? Interesting. Uh, yeah, they're all spread uh, out. Famously, one in Sumatra, right? Um, the Achenese. Uh, uh, Indonesia, an, an archipelago of thirteen thousand islands. Okay, right, right. Um, and my surmise was, in order for these autonomy movements had to be. Uh, you know, dealt with, right? And, and they have been. Um, and my surmise was, in in order to remain together, Indonesia is going to have to come part way apart, right? Uh-huh. Uh, um, and I think the same is true of the West. Nobody's talking about the disappearance of the West, but I think it's going to have to come part way apart in order to remain coherent and at peace with itself, if you will. Oh, interesting. Right? Yeah. Uh, and, and this means primarily uh, two things, uh, a consolidation of the European project, um, imperfect as I yeah. consider it to be, well, yeah. uh, uh, and al- also um, a certain healthy uh, distance uh, across the Atlantic, right? Not alienation, but a, a healthy distance. Um, that's the endogenous aspect. Uh, uh, looking externally, the West's position in the global order, there's no question it's changing. Uh, I've written in too many columns to count uh, that parity between West and non-West is, is a non-negotiable 21st century imperative. Uh, that th- that observation derives from living three decades in the non-West. Uh, it's it's it doesn't matter whether I or you or any of your listeners want that to be the case. I actually do, but that doesn't matter. It's going to be the case uh-huh, uh-huh. whether we like it or not, right? Uh, yes. Uh, just this morning in the Times, some of your listeners almost certainly saw this, uh, Xi Jinping gave a speech <clears throat> remarking on China. Uh, China's pulled out of the COVID thing rather effectively, right? Uh, uh, <clears throat> China gave, uh, Xi Jinping gave a speech saying, the East is rising. Well, you know, this phrase goes back Very to old, all, yes. all that, right? Yeah. Uh, the East is red and so forth, right? Um, um, 
but he, you know, he's, I don't think he meant it arrogantly. Of course, the Times interpreted it that way. Uh, but um, uh, I, I think he was just stating a reality, right? And, and I've just stated that reality. We are going to live in a time of parity between West and non-West. This is to uh, turn 500 years of history on its head. Um, if you want, I'll explain my date, but uh, 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 we let's can move on if yeah, sure. otherwise. Um, I, I think... Uh, I think this is to be welcomed, and the West is going to have to adjust to this. It means something really important to the Europeans. What is going to be their position in the 21st century as the West internally loosens its, uh, let's just say, its its glue, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and as I in indicated in the column, I think there are two things here to the Europeans have to consider. We Americans have no idea of. I wish we better appreciated the European position. One is they're going to have to come, come to terms with their ge- geography as destiny here, right? Yes. Uh, they're going to have to come to terms with their uh, position as the western flank of the Eurasian landmass, right? Uh, uh, they're not going to get Russia to move, um, the, you know, and and Russia's identity is Western and non-Western all at once, right? right? right. It's quite curious that way. Uh, and um, they're going to have to come to terms with that. That's what they're talking about now. We are not interested in hostilities with the Russians. We don't see any point. The second... Um, the, the second uh, dimension of the of the European circumstance is they have a their North Africa and the Middle East are their periphery. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is one thing for we Americans to stir up hostilities with the Iranians and create complete chaos uh, and human desperation in Syria. Mm-hmm. Because we're very far away. Right. right? Mm-hmm. The closest we get to it are stories buried on the inside of the foreign page of the New York Times. Yeah. Uh, for the Europeans, it's a reality. Yeah, it's right there. These are, you know, these are geographic realities, and they're going to have to co- reach some sort of enduring settlement with the Islamic countries on their periphery. And I think they want to. That's why they were... That's another reason why they were so offended when Trump pulled out of the Iranian nuclear accord. Mm. That was an agreement that stood not only for Europe's capacity to act cooperatively, um, but also uh, it stood for the, the Europe. It, it betokened Europe's awareness that. Uh, reaching an accommodation, uh, a sustainable accommodation with sure. the non-West on its doorstep could be achieved, right? Uh, 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 you know, and so they're they're interested in that. They're still trying to salvage the Iran Accord. Uh, yeah. 
not very persuasively or courageously, but they are. And it's interesting. We can be critical all we want of accommodationism, but we're not there, as you say. I mean, they are right there. And mm. it, in your article, you quote Angela Merkel, our interests in Germany will not always converge. And you quote Macron. No. And you quote Macron that European security required, requires not animus and more NATO advances eastward, but a dialogue with Russia. Right. What What right. do they mean? And what happens if we don't if we don't fully get that? If we don't fully get it, I think he who would isolate others will re, will end up being isolated. Um, Funny how that works. <laughs> I think that's what may, I'll stay with the conditional, uh, be in prospect if we continue on uh, with our Russophobia and our high tensions and our nonsense little tableau like Navalny and so on, right? Uh, one, your listeners may or may not agree with me, right. but uh, one sort of propaganda scam after another. If we continue on with this, um, the Europeans are going to depart right, from mm, it. Mm-hmm. Already, the, the Navalny so-called poisoning, by the way, uh, has been conclusively disproven now. You will not read about this in the New York Times, but if you look around, you can read it elsewhere. He, had, uh, he was on lithium, it transpires, and he overdosed on lithium. Mm. That's what that's what they found in his system, and that's why the German doctors and the Swedes sort of, if you will, bang their shoes on the table, <laughs> insisting the Russians investigate this. Uh, uh, but no, you can't see any of our data. That's why they will not share their medical data because there's nothing in it. Well, either way, I am of the West. You are of the West. I I don't want to be in Russia. I don't want to be in China. This is my culture, and pop- nobody's asking. This no, is my I know. point. Nobody's yeah, yeah. asking you. Exactly. Right. Exactly. exactly. That's their business, right? Uh, and I think uh, the, the Europeans are probably seem to be getting that as well, and they exactly ha- exactly have to live there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, um, now, if I may continue on yes, this sure, sure. question, I got lost in Navalny, right? Uh, yes. The Germans are now going, to, quite clearly, going to go ahead with this um, controversial uh, gas pipeline, Nord Stream 2, right. uh-huh. between a port uh, on Russia's border with Finland uh, and a port in Germany. Uh, from which uh, natural gas will be distributed throughout Europe. They're going ahead with this. And what, uh, when I said in my column, and when I said to you just earlier, the Europeans are being courteous and cordial, uh, the words I used in the column were they're parrying, they're, they're parrying, uh, they're humoring uh, mm-hmm. the American. They're mm-hmm. humoring Biden. Yes, yes, okay, well, look, we'll sanction a couple of inconsequential Russian officials, but uh, get out of the way. Nord Stream 2 is coming. Uh-huh. Right? Um, uh, Economics so, trump pretty much everything. That's where their interests lie, and, um, and their interests have been 
you know, fairly rationally determined. They have, and natural gas. Russia's mm. got it. The mm. world wants it. There you go. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We have one of our listeners' favorite guests back on, Patrick Lawrence, who's written an article titled Biden in Europe, subtitled Those Courteous Continentals. And one can really think about courtesy, what it means, you know, like, oh, yes, it's so lovely. But then if they, you know, behind their backs, who knows what's going on? Right. And you refer to, quote, America's incessant efforts to keep the world as thoroughly divided and on edge as possible. End of quote. What's the motivation behind that stance? And it's worked for a long time, but what about now? What's the motivation? Oh, let me have fun here, Bert, and begin with a <laughs> ring a bell a number of your listeners are certain to re respond to. Uh, what's good for Raytheon is not good for the United States, right? Uh, yes, yes. Um, the motivations for keeping the world divided, it's, it's, uh, I'm afraid it's a pretty grotesque picture. Uh, we've got a Frankenstein on our hands. Uh, Eisenhower told us about oh, yeah. this in 1960. Uh, it's no surprise. Um, the military-industrial complex was considered a, a slightly outre uh, uh, phrase uh, uh, for a long time. It's not any longer, right? We, we've got, and you have to expand it out. It goes all the way to something called Mickey Mad. I don't, I can't remember at all. Mm -hmm. Military, industrial, media, national security, da-da-da-da, um, complex. <laughs> it's big. <laughs> yeah. It's powerful. It's the, the acronym is Mickey Matt. Don't ask me what it all okay. what all is in it. Um, but we we have we have kind of a monster that cannot be tamed. Um, uh, the we have uh, to. defense, the Pentagon, and the defense contractors. The the revolving door is at this point grotesque. Our current defense secretary Lloyd Austin uh, has. Very consider. He's on the board of um, Raytheon. My understanding is he has not mm. yet resigned. Oh my. Oh. Uh, my understanding is he has a, a very considerable share of Raytheon stock and uh, stock options and all the rest of it. Right. Wow. I, um, the, these are my understandings. I haven't done any deep reporting on it. Uh, but in, in any case, we have this problem and. Um, I use the word grotesque, and I, I mean it in this way. When you have a, a situation where uh, the, the pecuniary interests of defense contractors and shareholders and retired generals and so forth have this much, uh, this overweening influence on the global order and international affairs, you have a problem. And this is our problem. Uh, this is the primary reason uh, America uh, insists on keeping the world yep. at a level of tension that requires us, supposedly, mm -hmm. to be present as the powerful 
so-called peacemaker, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. In other words, I, I think I wrote this in another column, not the one we're talking about, right? Um, in the context of China and Asia, we need China to be aggressive and threatening, right? Yes. And and it, because we need the the rest of Asia to need us to protect it from aggressive, threatening China, and if and if China and China must be aggressive and threatening, and if we don't have any evidence of China being aggressive and threatening, we're just going to repeat that it's aggressive and threatening <laughs> until it's taken as fact, right? I've never seen anybody give me a shred of evidence that China is aggressive or threatening. It's large. It can't help that. Um, uh, But uh, uh, the rest of Asia uh, quite understands their circumstances. China is a neighbor. Let's be neighborly, right? Uh, So we, we need this degree of tension just in, as the Asia case illustrates, this is what we need. It's, it's, Apart from the, apart from the material interests of the defense industries and so forth, we need it in order to maintain a world order where we uh, enjoy hegemony. Uh-huh. Right? Uh huh. It does seem to be the case, and not to get too far off track, but thinking of China and what they're doing in Africa, as Trump called all the countries in Africa shithole nations, which I hesitate to say on the radio, but if he can say it, I can say it. Uh, and they're, they're doing well. Russia, China and Africa, China is, has got that whole uh, belt, uh, road and belt uh, initiative, and it's helping belt Africa. Road. Yeah. It's absolutely appalling. They're building roads, they're building hospitals, they're building factories, they're employing millions of Africans. It's just awful. And what... <laughs> <laughs> and it's threatening. Oh, of course, it's threatening. Oh my goodness, not that. It's aggression. It's a, it's soft aggression. Well, we'll come up with anything we have to come up with, right? Why though? I'm Why sorry, couldn't I, we I'm, do that? I'm being a little unnecessarily uh, we, sarcastic here. We like wit. we like humor on this show. We do appreciate it for sure. Uh, and we here we are in the 21st century, well into it, in the 2020s. And you say in your article, Americans simply do not understand the dynamics of our new century. And and you and others observe that Europe understands and favors multipolarity as a 21st century imperative. What is that likely to look like if we don't get in their way too much? Do they and they see some sort of cooperative relations with Moscow and Beijing that that we don't see. What's likely to happen if we don't put up two big stumbling blocks? You know, uh, Bert, um, I've, I've, I've for a long time entertained an abiding interest in what's known as the independence era. This is uh, uh-huh. the post-war decades when, between 1947, when... Um, India became uh, independent, freedom at midnight. And somewhere in the 1960s, you know, scores and scores of nations, maybe over a hundred, came into being, right? Um, yeah. And theme, you know, the, the humanity had such splendid aspirations after 
disaster of 1945. If you read about that period, it's very moving. Yeah. You know, there, there was a common vision uh, uh, that we could we could live in a in a better. Uh, more respectful world, you know. Yeah, uh, the UN. Pardon me for interrupting. Uh, the, it the was UN... wonderful, and and the the great independence leaders of that time are some of my favorite people to think about. Um, uh, Nehru and uh, Sukarno, uh, uh, Nerere and Kuma. These sort of people, right? I lots, would add... lots of them. Lumumba. Lumumba. I was going to say. Um, the Cold War extinguished all that. It was uh, such a tragedy, uh. right? Um, a world of multiple voices, uh, a world truly self-determining, mm. uh, was was uh, all. Um, I said extinguished. I'm going to say almost extinguished um, by the Cold War. You had to be with us, or you had to right. be with them, right. uh, and never mind what was going on in your country. Uh, you were, you know, um, you were either uh, with the United States or with the Soviets. I think your listeners will understand my point. Uh, when the Cold War ended, the 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 sort of long durée of things, right? The the underlying trends of history returned. Uh, and all that aspiration began to come back to the surface. This is my reading, mm -hmm. right? Um, mm -hmm. uh, and, and that's the world we have a chance to live in now, right? Uh -huh. uh, um, and, and that's the world I, I think those of us who give our time to these things are working for, right? Uh, that's how I would define it. And uh, and I think the Europeans, oh, look, uh, you know, the, the Europeans, um, I don't want to put them on a pest, pedestal no. by any, any, any means, right? But uh, uh, I think they're at least, uh, I don't want to say dimly, but uh, somewhat aware of of the world as it is going to be in, in our century. Uh, and they're beginning to respond to it. Well, we I, Americans are just not. We, no. As I like to say to friends, the reality is we Americans just do not like the 21st century, and we're <laughs> not going to join it until we have to. <laughs> yeah, well, that's an interesting point. And I was going to mention how one of the greatest things to come out of the Second World War was the uh, Eleanor Roosevelt-driven Declaration on Human Rights. That was just what I'm. Just the period of time I'm talking about. It was so hopeful, and it was so. It's still possible. I encourage listeners to look up the UN Declaration on Human Rights from 1948. It is possible, but as you say, we've gotten away from that, and you know the the bipolar world. Uh, it just it doesn't have to be that way, and and yet here we have Secretary of State Blinken saying to Europe. The world does not organize itself. Uh, diplomacy depends on the strength of our military. What? Right. Why are they digging? I, I just 
doesn't Biden... The world does not organize itself. Yeah, right. Parentheses, unspoken parentheses. It needs us to organize it. Absolutely. And you Europeans better understand that, <laughs> right? Close parentheses. Right? It's, it's, it's amazing. What an... So the... the uh, the pompousness is just breathtaking. Yeah, it's quite, it's quite bitter to say this. I say it in columns once in a while. It's quite bitter because, and I, I, I hesitate sometimes because I, I don't want to come over as you know, sort of Mister Negative or anything. But uh, uh, the 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 pithy truth of it is, Bert, <laughs> um, you have to hope our foreign policy fails. And whenever it does, the world's a little bit better off wow. because there's so little that is that is genuinely good in it anymore, right? I want us to fail in Syria. I want us to fail with this Cold War II with China. Mm-hmm. I want us to fail with our campaign of Russophobia against the Russian Federation. You know, I want us to fail in Venezuela, oh, yeah. et cetera. Right. Um, and and that's uh, not, I, if I may add, I, I think that's, you know, people would say, what are you, anti-American? No. no. I, I always say to readers, don't miss the optimism buried in the apparent pessimism. Uh-huh. Right? Same I about want that. us to fail because we can do better. Interesting. We can do better. I, I We can and, and we have. And, you know, just one example. Look at the our incredible war in Vietnam. Now we're doing business with them. They're doing business with us. We could have been doing that all along. We, They're a remarkable people, aren't they, Bert? I, I'd love to go there someday. You know, I was offered a free trip there, paid for by the government when I was uh, 19. No, when I was 19. <laughs> yeah, I often say <laughs> that was I, the I war. have never met a more dignified, poised people than the Vietnamese. Yeah, I, I do. My first that. contact with them was in the refugee camps in Southeast Asia, uh, when the re- when these camps were filling with boat people. And okay. I want to put in a little plug here for a movie I just recently saw, Spike Lee's yeah. The Five Bloods. That is an amazing film. Talk about racism and what Vietnam was all about. The Five Bloods. Say again the title. Da D A Five Bloods. The Five Bloods. Uh-huh. It's really uh-huh. it just you, you want to understand our experience in Vietnam. That's a really good movie. Yeah, I know that's a, a little bit off topic here, but right. uh, is there? You write that there is a deeper current of history that has been evident in transatlantic ties since the Cold War's end. No U.S. administration has understood this force in the slightest. Is Biden? more likely to get it than his predecessors? Is he locked into the, the old neoliberal, you know, colonialist, basically? Uh, or, or, I mean, it seems like he has a lot of opportunities to do things differently. Any any thoughts on that? I mean, he's a bright man. He I think yeah. he, he cares about America. He really does, unlike his predecessor. What are your thoughts on Biden we, getting it? We've got a lot of people who have better manners than the Trump crowd. Um, they're more <laughs> polished. Maybe their degrees are from higher institutions of, of, of greater, you know, sort of elevation, right? But it is absolutely amazing to date. We're six weeks into this business, uh, and um, quite a lot is already evident. I, I am already amazed at their fidelity to the outmoded notions um, 
of American exceptionalism, American primacy. Um, we are bombing Syrians in order to save Syrians. Right. We are starving Venezuelans because we want to make their lives better. You know, uh, uh, it's quite shocking. I, I, no, I, I don't see this administration uh, doing really very much other than worsening the circumstance. Mm. Um, and really, that's too bad. My, if I may say, coming up to the end of our time, um, I often wonder why Americans just don't get off their sofas over any of this. Well, Bert, we've right? been we've been led to believe that we are powerless since the the protests yes, ended the war in Vietnam. Very complicated question. Steve Fraser, CUNY professor. Uh, wrote a really interesting book called The Age of Acquiescence. Uh, uh-huh. How come, you know, he asked the question we're talking about right now, and his answer, quite astute, he said, you know, in, in generations past, people had a memory of things that were different and better. Right? Mm. People had a memory of the New Deal. Yes. People had a memory of pre-Cold War global order, right? Uh, people had a memory of pe- peaceful coexistence, right. uh, etc. And we alive now have no memory of any such thing. It's never been any different. Well, what, what's uh, most important, I think, in, in the uh, historiography is erasing history. You have to, the powers that be have to yeah. erase history because, oh, if we think with history, yikes, that could threaten their power. And uh, yes. I, I want to just what might be possible. I wonder if it's possible that U.S. might not consider itself exceptional and live with respect and equality for other countries. And with that, you know, we, we used to consider ourselves, well, of course, we'll be at the head of the table. And Trump actually pushed people aside to be ahead. I mean, physically did that. And and you say, with regard to our relations with Europe, the dining room has been refashioned. What do you mean? Um, the table is round, as I said. Yep. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I mean, we are we are easing into a multipolar world order where there is no hegemonic power. That's what I mean. Yep. Um, and our claim to hegemony rests very squarely the way we justify it in our minds, uh, on our exceptionalism. If I may toot my horn, I don't like to do that, but I will. Oh, go ahead. I wrote an essay called After Exceptionalism Ah. in um, a journal called Raritan, which I recommend to all listeners. Uh Uh, And I I took this very question apart. How will we get past this, right? My answer begins with this, and maybe your listeners will agree. I think a very great many of us, a very, very great many of us, have had it with the notion of American exceptionalism. Yes. Um, and we understand uh, our place uh, in in the world order, not mythically, but historically. <laughs> Whoa. That's the big difference. We're moving, we, we, people want to move from 
a mythical notion of what it means to be an American to an historical, yes. uh, a notion of being an American that is rooted in history, right, uh, uh, as opposed to myth, right? And and um, I, I think this is the starting point. Uh, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't at all say it as some do that it's impossible for us to imagine us getting beyond our chosen people consciousness, our, our exceptionalist mm-hmm. claim. Uh, but I, I think it's a long project. Yes. But I think it's already in, in motion, oh, right? Absolutely. We're, we're now yeah, talking absolutely. about uh, people in positions of power operating uh, on the basis of, and, and constant, constantly reasserting uh, our exceptionalist status. Yeah. But how many of us have any uh, any bearing on on foreign policy? None. This is a sequestered elite. No. They don't represent us. And a very, very great many of us uh, are done with exceptionalism. I really, yes. truly believe that. That's my experience walking around in this country. And as you say, I love this quote from, from you, Patrick Lawrence, uh, you recall no previous time when an intellectual grasp of underlying global realities, along with the literate awareness of history's turning wheel, mattered more than now. I couldn't help, I can't help but agree with you completely, and I once again highly recommend the book. You talk about being prescient. You, this was published in 2013, Time No Longer, Americans After the American Century. We are getting there. We are getting there. So if people want to read more of this... I think so. Oh, yeah. There's resistance, but hey, so what? If people want to read more... We just have to keep on keeping on, Bert, and I know that expression dates me. (laughs) I think I'm older than you, but I'm not sure. Anyway, (laughs) if people people want to read more of your stuff, of which there's a fair amount, what can you point them to on that internet thing? Oh, my website's my archive, um, patricklawrence.us. Okay. Um, that's and the Scrum, I urge people to have yes. a look. Uh, we're still open to free subscribers at the uh-huh. moment. We'll uh, we'll start to alter that when we can, yes. just yes. as a matter of sustainability. Imagine that. But uh, have a look at the Scrum, uh, uh, if, if your listeners wish to. Try My to columns present. are every other week at Consortium News, and even when my columns aren't there, it's a great website. It's a it's a very, it has a lot of integrity there. No junk, you know, good stuff, good people writing for it. No junk, good stuff. I could say that about this show, too. Hmm. All right. Hey, thank you so much for being with us, Patrick Lawrence. And it's good to think about sitting oh, at Bert, a round it's table. Oh, great to join you. And with it no longer being taken for granted that America sits at the head of the table, the leaders of Europe and America are sitting at a circular table. You're just sitting around in circles.